So recently, a few of my friends have gotten into Formula One racing. Uh, perhaps you have also gotten swept into that craze. Uh, I, I have not, but from what I understand, uh, the F1 racing teams are constantly improving and tweaking their vehicles throughout the season, trying to give their car just the slightest edge over their competition. So they have all the fanciest bells, whistles, and doodads. So what I want you to do is imagine that it's race day. And so they are wheeling out their $12.5 million supercar onto the track. And I want you to imagine that in one of those supercars, the battery is dead. How far do you think it gets? Nowhere, of course. Right? It doesn't matter how nice it is to look at. It doesn't matter how much cutting-edge technology they've crammed into this vehicle. If it doesn't have a working battery, it goes nowhere, and it's pointless. And what we're going to do tonight as we wrap up our series on the Gospel of Mark is I want us to look at the battery of Mark's Gospel, and really of all of Christianity. I want us to look at the resurrection of Jesus, because without it, nothing we've talked about really matters or works. And so what we're going to do to close out our time in the Gospel of Mark is look at Mark chapter 16, which records uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And I want us to, to look at two things. I want us to look at the results of Jesus' resurrection and the first responses to his resurrection. So the results of his resurrection. And I know I just said we'll be in Mark 16, which we will be, but I find it very difficult to talk about the resurrection without spending just a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians 15. So keep your finger in Mark, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, and if you land in verse 16, you're in the right spot. So Paul is doing a lot of stuff in this chapter, all connected to the resurrection, but I really just want to zero in on two results of Jesus' resurrection. And the first one is really quite obvious, right? That, that Jesus' resurrection means that we will be resurrected, right? That because he has life, we also have eternal life. It's one of those simple things that you learned in children's church. What Paul seems to be interested in these verses is to explain to us what type of resurrection we will experience. I say that because of verse 20, where he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is a, it's a farming term, but you really don't have to be a farmer to figure it out, right? What is a first fruit? It's the, the first fruit. It's the, the first apple on the tree. It's the first strawberry that's peeking out from underneath the leaves. And it would be pretty strange, right, if the first fruit on a tree was an apple and the rest of them were oranges, Right? Actually, it wouldn't be odd. It would be impossible. It never works that way. Whatever the first fruit is, everything else follows suit. And so Paul takes that logic and he applies it to the resurrection. He says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of our own. And so if we want to understand what life after death is like, what the results of the resurrection are, we simply have to look at Jesus. So I just want to briefly highlight three things. One, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, it is a physical resurrection. There's this misunderstanding that 
whenever we're raised, there will be these disembodied spirits just kind of like floating around on clouds or this um, uh, floating choir for eternity. And that's not true. Uh, we will be embodied physical beings just like Jesus was. Um, it also means, based on Jesus' resurrection, that you will re be recognizably you. It's kind of interesting that whenever Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, no one said, who are you? They all knew exactly who he was. They just assumed he was a ghost. And so you will look like you. And that might be disappointing for some of you, which is why the third thing is really important. You will be you, but you will be a perfected you. Uh, Revelations 21.4 tells us that, that there will be no crying or pain, that when we think about Jesus' resurrected body, he walks through walls. That's pretty sweet. I don't know how he does it, but I, I'm excited to try to figure it out. And so here, here, here's my point, guys. When we want to understand what life after death is, what the results of the resurrection are, we look to Jesus' resurrection. It's the first fruit. It's the template for us. But that's really secondary in Paul's mind here. He's actually way more concerned about convincing us about the, what the results of the resurrection are for this life. Um, I want to read verses 16 through 19. It's some of my favorite texts because of how logically sarcastic it is. He says in verse 16, If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's what Paul's saying. The dumbest thing you can do, the dumbest thing you can place your hope in is a dead guy. I mean, think about it. Why would you conform your life to what Jesus has said to do if he's dead? Why, why love your enemies? Why, why act selflessly toward others? If, if Jesus is dead, it didn't get him anywhere. So why, why would that be any different for you? I, I, I think if that's true, Paul has it right in verse 32, that if the dead are not raised, if, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, live however you want, because in the end, we're all going to die, and there is no sense suffering hardship to uphold the ideals of a dead man. You might as well try to squeeze as much enjoyment out of life as you can. But of course, Paul's point is that Jesus has been raised, and that changes everything. It, it gives his commands weight. It gives worth to his promises. It means that, that we have assurance that our future is secure. And when you know that your future is secure, it really changes your outlook on the present. It enables you to hold fast to what he's called you to do, even when it gets tough. See, the resurrection doesn't just result in, in a, a life after death. It actually results in, in what we call the Christian life now. It enables it and inspires it. And we really could, could just stop here, but, but I want us to see how Mark ends his gospel, because there's a fascinating point that I think often gets overlooked. So turn back with me to Mark chapter 16. And I'm going to back up a few verses from the end, just, just for context sake. So, so Mark tells us that three women go to Jesus' tomb, 
and, and they are surprised to find that the stone has been rolled away. In verse 5, they enter the tomb and they see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out. And they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. Isn't that fascinating that that's how Mark chooses to end his gospel? Now, there, there is a little debate as to where the gospel of Mark actually ends uh, some manuscripts have it at the end of verse 20, but for our purposes, let's just accept the premise that it actually ends here at verse 8, that Mark purposely chose to end his, his gospel on a cliffhanger. And I think he's doing so because he's trying to create an intentional contrast. See, if you read through the gospel of Mark, this scenario will happen over and over again. Jesus does something miraculous, and he tells people, hey, don't say anything to anyone. Keep it to yourself. And what do they do? They go and tell everyone. But now here, Jesus does the greatest miracle of all. The angel tells them, go tell everyone. And they go away silently. They tell no one. And Mark wants us to wrestle with why. And, and we shouldn't be hard on these three ladies because everyone initially who hears about the resurrection has some type of negative reaction to the news. They're either afraid or dismissive or doubtful. And what, what we need to realize is that knowledge of the resurrection doesn't change anyone. You need something more. And I think C.S. Lewis actually highlights this very well in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you're not familiar with it, it's an allegorical tale that's really built around the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in the book, the Christ figure, Aslan the Lion, he dies sacrificially, he's raised from the dead, and we're told that Lucy and Susan, two of the main characters, are, are, are scared when they see him. They know he's been raised from the dead, but they're still scared. And what Aslan decides to do is to breathe on them. And that has always seemed super strange to me. Like he does it throughout the series. He sees someone, he just goes, ah, on them. And, and, and it solves all the problems. But then I was thinking about it this week, and I realized that in order to breathe on someone, you have to get really close to them. You have to get right up in their face. You have to know them pretty well to let you breathe on them. And, and that's what makes the difference with the resurrection. See, knowledge about the resurrection will not change you. But knowing the resurrected one will. And, and, and it's quite possible that some of you aren't there yet. Perhaps you're still back at the knowledge days of the resurrections. Perhaps you still have doubts or questions that it even happened. Great. We have answers. and We'd love to talk to you about it. But just surveying the room, I think, I think most of us already have the knowledge about the resurrection. We don't even believe that it's true. But it might not have changed you yet. 
And that's because you need something more. You're still stuck living in the fear of the future, fear of people's opinions or what have you. You need to know the resurrected one. And that means you need to draw near to him. You need to to get close enough to him that he can metaphorically breathe on you. (music) Thank you.